Let's turn to Isaiah 45, if you will. Isaiah 45. Now, I was going to say last week, but no, it wasn't last week. Uh, A few weeks ago, uh, we did the first eight verses of Isaiah 45, dealing with God raising up a man named Cyrus, a Persian, to do his work for him, to be an instrument of the Lord. And so tonight we're going to get caught up with Isaiah 45 and begin at verse 9. And so let's read down through verse 13, then we'll pray and get right into our study tonight. Isaiah 45, verse 9. And I think it is a good place for us to start because of the, the impact of what the prophet is saying concerning our relationship with God. Verse 9 says, Woe to him who strives with his Maker. Let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or shall your handiwork say, He has no hands? Woe to him who says to his father, What are you begetting? Or to the woman, What have you brought forth? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and his maker. Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands, you command me. I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens and all their host I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price, nor reward, says the Lord of hosts. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you and we bless you for the privilege and the opportunity to read and to study your word together. We thank you so much that you care so deeply for us. And you, and you care how we are to live for you. And you're not without knowledge of us and of our thoughts and of the intents of our heart. And I pray, Father, that tonight we will catch a glimpse of your glory so that we will only desire you above all things that have been created. For you are above all your creation. You're worthy of our praise and you're worthy of our worship and you're worthy of our fellowship. You're worthy of our whole life, our whole lives. We pray, Father, that you'll anoint us and bless us and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Grant us wisdom and understanding, Lord, beyond the academic Grant us wisdom that we may apply everything to living our lives for Jesus Christ until the day of his return. And this we pray and ask in Jesus' name. 
Amen. And amen. I am always amazed at how wonderfully accurate God's Word is. I'm amazed at how accurate the Word of God is. For the person who places a keen eye on things in this world and observes its goings-on, it, it is hard to miss the heart attitude of, of a world so separated from and out of touch with the God who created all peoples and all things to the extent that there is no desire to have one sovereign to rule over it. Have you noticed that? They have no desire whatsoever. I say that those who live in the world, those who live under the sun without God or without any thought or desire for God. That is the heart attitude of the world. Take, for example, from the very beginning of time, the time as we know it, the heart condition of a world now saturated with sin, to the point that God, in verse 5 of Genesis chapter 6, it says of Him, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I have to tell you that nothing's changed over the thousands of years since that began. Nothing has changed. It doesn't matter what generation you grew up with and where, where, where man was saying, look, we can, make the, we can make this world better. The group Chicago years ago said, we can make it happen. You can make what happen? I like to teach the world to sing, drink a Coke, and everybody's happy. I know I, I run that into the ground all the time, but you get the picture. Some of you think, what generation are you from? Too many years ago. But it doesn't matter how many times you realize that people are saying, we can make things happen, we can make things better, we can apply these things in our lives that we're doing because we have the power. But the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. I don't know about you, but every time I, I, I look at the news, and I, I, I watch that Fox News, that's kind of what I, you know, that's my pro, uh, uh, channel of choice to see the world news. But uh, when, I, when I watch it, I'm amazed every morning. Some kind of wickedness, some kind of evil, some kind of just rottenness is taking place. The last few days there's been so much talk about uh, uh, child sexual molestation, you know. And, and it, it just burdens your heart to read these things and to see that this, this, this is happening in our world around us. Kids three years old being sexually molested. What is that? We didn't know about that, at least when we were growing up. I mean... If it ever happened, I mean, boy, there was a lynch mob. And nowadays we have people running to protect them. Misinterpreting the Constitution, misinterpreting the laws. But we've got to run to protect these people. they got rights. But what about that three-year-old little girl? What about the family? 
the wickedness of man, you see. This hasn't changed. Jeremiah 17, verses 9 and 10, God says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his, of his doings. The heart is deceitful above all things. But I thought that we've come a long way. Here I go, you know, putting the, the generational twist on this. You remember Virginia Slims, we've come a long way, baby. Was, was that in the 60s? We come up with all these thoughts, all these little quips, you know, all these little things to say. To do what? We've come a long way and yet the heart is still deceitful above all things. And the Lord says, I, the Lord, search the heart. Paul, and we could read the whole first chapter of the book of Romans, but Paul says in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress or hold back or hold down the truth in unrighteousness, because what may be known of God is manifest in them. Notice, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and God, and so that they are without excuse. What excuse? The excuse is, you can't say that there isn't a God. By everything that you see. And so the reality is, there are no atheists. You only call yourself that because you don't want to believe in God. But you can't escape the very fact that there's a God. And then he goes on to say this. They are without excuse because although they knew God, there it is, although uh, they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. You see, that happens today too. This was written 2,000 years ago, but the same thing exists today. Professing to be wise. They became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. That wasn't a new thing in Paul's time. All you got to do is read the book of Exodus and see what they did when they made that graven image. To worship because Moses was up there with God and they didn't think he was going to come down or maybe he had died up there or whatever. Aaron, make us an image to worship. The golden calf was made. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing has changed. Look at all the golden calves that are being made today. Though they might be in the form of a lot of other different things. You see, if this is the case concerning the foolishness of those who neither glorify nor are thankful to the God who created them, how much more foolish are those who question God? How much more foolish are those who question God? And here's the first thing that is stated in this text of ours. Who, or I should say, woe to him who strives with his maker. Woe, oy vey, <laughs> oy, woe to him. 
who strives with his Maker, who questions, who opposes, who accuses. All those words can be found in that word, strives. Woe to him who strives with his Maker is a tremendously strong admonition and judgment toward the puny person who would quarrel with the Creator. Well, that's what you are if you, if you argue with God. You're puny. Because think about how big God is. Unless you created Him yourself. You see, though those who were idol worshippers in that time, and you know, we've already gone through that, that bit, to deal, you know, God dealing with their idol worship and all, and we, we're going to see a little bit more of that again tonight. But they carried their idols. Who was bigger? They were bigger than their gods. They weren't carrying around big statues like this. They were carrying their own personal little gods that they carved out and created. Some of them were a little bigger, you know, because some wanted their gods bigger than next door neighbor's god. But you, in the presence of the God who created you, we're, we're just puny. And so this is a strong judgment against a puny person who would quarrel with the Creator. The fact of the matter is that the context of the first eight verses of chapter 45 dictates the necessity to make such a pronouncement. Remember that God chose, God chose a Gentile king. Cyrus the Persian. To not only free the captive Judeans from Babylon but to also rebuild Jerusalem, as we'll see in this chapter. The prophet Isaiah, under the influence and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, foresaw that some of the exiles would think it improper for a Gentile king to be God's instrument of redemption, and therefore proclaim, he was proclaiming the sovereignty of the Lord. It would be the Jews themselves that would say, Hey, wait a minute. Cyrus the king? Whoever this Cyrus is going to be? We're going to be in exile? How can that be God? So that's the, that's the initial context of this particular striving. Woe to him who strives with his maker. God, you see, God already, already hears the complaints. Whether you voice them with your mouth or not, he's already hearing it because he hears the heart. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of like that little kid, you know, that you tell, you, you tell him, sit down, I want to talk to you. And he says, I don't want to sit down. And you just tell him, you sit down, I want, you, I, want you, I want you to sit down, I don't want to sit down. And finally, you know, he sits down and he says, well, I'm sitting down outside, but on the inside I'm standing up. That's the way we are sometimes with God. We don't have to do anything on the outside, you know, we don't, we don't have to voice it on the outside, in the inside, you know. Already, our minds, our thoughts, you know, God knows them. We could look so saintly on the outside. But on the inside, we're evil. Or we're thinking evil thoughts towards someone else. Now God has shaped man, as we see in the text that we just read a little while ago, God has shaped man the way a potter fashions pottery of clay. And he, and he mentions this when he says, Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? 
God shaped man the way a potter fashions pottery of clay. Go back to Genesis chapter 2 verse 7. Genesis 2 verse 7 it says, And the Lord God formed man out of what? The dust of the ground. He formed us like pottery. Out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. God gave us life. But he gave us life after he made us out of the dust of the ground. Just like you, if you've ever done pottery or whatever, you take the dirt, the dust of the ground, and you put some water on it, and you start to shape it and form it, and you put it on the spinning thing, and you've got mud going all over the place. But, you know, but then eventually you form something. Well, God didn't need all of those tools. He just took the ground and he formed man. And people think, well, that's kind of weird. No, it isn't. Look at the composition, scientifically, look at the composition of the body and you realize that we're made out of everything that this earth has. Isn't God amazing? And so in essence, a human being is nothing more than a clay pot. I'm looking at a bunch of clay pots here tonight. And you're looking at a real big clay pot. By the way, I'm not saying I'm not saying that. Well, let, let me let me put it this way: as as earthen vessels, as, as it says in the in the New Testament, uh, that that could be kind of translated as cracked pots. So we're cracked pots. But I, I want to make that real clear that I'm not calling you a cracked pot, because a cracked pot is different than a cracked pot. A cracked pot is somebody who's kind of crazy and he has weird ideas. But a cracked pot is just somebody who's made out of the dust of this ground, an earthen vessel, that we all are. And so we're nothing more than a clay pot and from that particular standpoint. But, but that is the understanding of the second part of verse 9 in our text. When it says, let the potsherds, or the potsherds, however you want to pronounce it, uh, strive with the potsherds of the earth. Now what's interesting about that particular statement is that the word let is not in the original Hebrew manuscript, so some translations may read a pot among earthen pots, or one clay pot among many, or an earthenware vessel among the vessels of the earth. So what he's saying in effect is, well, woe to him who strives with his maker. You know, you're just a pot among all the pots in this earth. That's what you are when you're striving and quarreling with God. And so for a person to quarrel with God is as absurd as clay calling the potter into account over his product. Can you imagine? Now just, just you have to kind of imagine a little weird here, but here's a, here's a potter making this vessel and, and forming it and doing all kinds of stuff in the water and the clay and, and finally you know, it's got the mud all over the place. But finally the pot is made. And then when it's made, the potter has a little mouth he says, Why would you make me this way? Do you get the picture here? It's kind of weird, isn't it? It's, a, it's an absurd thought. But the pot has a mouth and he says, why are you making me this way? So he's comparing him. He's just saying, listen, you're just like all the other pots in this, in this world that are made by me. The potter. Consider how foolish it is to oppose our Creator. Just consider how foolish it is to oppose our Creator. If He made us, He can break us. Think about that. 
If He made us, He can break us. If He made us, He knows what's best for us. If He made us, He knows where to put us to be in the very safest of places. Those of you who have children understand what I'm saying. When they're little and they start to learn how to, after the crawling stage and they start to learn how to get up, what's the first thing they do? Once, once they discover that they can walk a little bit, they start holding on to things, but then they start finding things. And those things that they find are things you don't want them to have. And, and so you put everything up about two feet up above them, right? So now... You know, everybody does that, right? I'm, I'm sure. You walk into a house of a person who's got a toddler that walks around, they've got everything lifted up about three feet. Everything's on pontoons in your house. So you place things where they are best placed. So the one who makes us knows us, and he knows what's best for us. If he made us, And please understand this, because this is the most important part of this thought. If He made us, then we owe our greatest duty, responsibility, and commitment to Him. We owe Him our very heart, our very life. Now we see how foolish it is for a clay pot, which is is the handiwork of the Creator, to say in so many words, My potter has no hands, and therefore I have no Creator. Did you notice that He said that there? Verse 9, shall your handiwork say he has no hands? You're the potter, you have no hands, look at me. Criticizing the Creator. It's foolish. Consider how strong a statement is made by the Apostle Paul of God's absolute sovereignty in his relation to man. This is what it's coming to. The understanding of the sovereignty of God in this. Turn to Romans chapter 9. You see, this is one of the strongest passages here in in Isaiah concerning the sovereignty of God and His relationship to man. But so is this in Romans chapter 9. And if you look at verse 20 and following, it says this, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show His wrath and to make His power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? In other words, all those who have been made by God, but they are, are, are really just vessels of destruction and, and all... But then in verse 23, he's endured that, that he might make known the riches of his glory in the vessels, on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. In other words, God is the potter. And he makes us. There are vessels for honor and vessels for dishonor. God can do that. But understand that those who are made, or or in the sense made for dishonor, have not chosen to honor God. 
Another judgment is pronounced in verse 10 over such a violation of God's sovereignty. But this time the comparison is with the behavior of a son. Now here again, you notice a picture of what we've seen before. You know, the, the, the clay pot is saying to the potter, you, 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 know, why, you have no hands, so therefore I'm not, uh, you haven't created me. You're not a creator. I have no creator. But that's foolish. And we know it's foolish. And, and I can tell you this right now, there, there are no inter- <laughs> intermediate forms here between us and the rest of creation. No link to other animals, no link to other things that can do, see, touch, taste, talk, walk, think as we do. It's just foolish to try to go back billions of years to try to make some kind of connection. But the problem now is this. With that thought in mind, what do people say about their own lifestyles, of their own ways of doing things, their own ways of thinking? There are those who will say tonight, God made me this way. No, he didn't. He made you a certain way. And you've argued with God about that. God made you a certain way. The Bible makes it very clear. Male and female, he created you. One or the other. Man has added all of the other labels. God didn't do that. So it's a choice. And it hurts to see those who choose to argue with God about that choice. To argue with him about labels when he created us very simply, either male or female. Do you understand what I'm saying about this? The arguments don't stand up because the clay pot is telling the potter, you didn't make me right. Or this is what I choose to be. So with that thought in mind, it brings us to this other uh, comparison with the behavior of a son. In fact, a newborn. This is really dealing with a newborn here, asking a father and mother, what have you begotten? What have you brought to birth? I mean, aren't you glad, moms, that when your sons and daughters were born, or sons or daughters were born, that that, uh, they didn't all of a sudden speak? They did cry. Some of them did scream. Some probably didn't say much until much later when they were hungry. But, but aren't you glad they didn't come out and say, Hey, Mom, what's up with this? I mean, isn't that absurd, you see? But this is what we're being given here, this picture. Can you imagine a newborn child asking any question at all, much less these kinds of pronounced questions? What have you begotten? What have you made me like? What have you brought to birth? I mean, let's remember that the begotten has no say in his birth. That's why they can't say anything. Because they had, no, they had no part in it. There wasn't this little gene or, you know, cell down inside of either the woman or the mom or whatever. And, and they say, make me this way. I'm inside of you, make me this way. It just doesn't happen that way. 
You see, again, going to the absurdity of things. Does an infant question and accuse their parents over how they were made? But think about how you were made. Wonderfully made, the Bible says. Fearfully and wonderfully made, David says. But we've learned something. We look in a mirror and we say, there's some imperfections here. We're not as perfect as we want to be. Or we're not as perfect as my mom kept saying I was. Actually, my mom never said that. But we each have strengths and weaknesses. Do we believe that? We each have strengths and weaknesses. We each go through trials and triumphs. We each experience comforts and challenges. Each and every one of us goes through all of these things in our life. But are we able to accept what we are before God and trust His power to transform us into the image of His Son? I hope so. I hope we're able to accept what we are before God. Those who have argued that, it's not what I am. I'm this. Has all, th- that person has already lost the wonder of a mighty God who created us in the image of His Son. Lost the wonder. There's no real worship there anymore. Or no potential for worship. Once you say, I'm not what I'm supposed to, I'm not what I want to be. But I can say this, God makes no mistakes. God makes no mistakes. Because if He made mistakes, He wouldn't be God. He makes no mistakes. We have to come to grips with the fact that we live in an imperfect world. And because of sin, we were born the way we were in some, in some ways, or in some cases. But, but here we are tonight, worshiping God, lifting up our voices in praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord who made us. And think about what you were 10, 20, 30 years ago, before you came to know Jesus Christ. What were you doing then? What were your arguments then? What were your desires then? But when God opened our eyes to sin in our hearts and we, and we cried out to God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, Lord, a sinner. Like that tax collector who said, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner, as if no one else was a sinner. I'm the sinner. If you're still in Romans, turn to Romans 8, verse 28. And we know three great words that we sometimes run too fast through. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. To those who are the called according to His purpose. For whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom He predestined, these He also called. Whom He called, these He also justified. And whom He justified, these He also glorified. And look at verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, 
who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now the question really is tonight, are we for God? Are we for Him? See, a lot of people like to hide behind that. Well, if God's for... You know, I've made certain decisions in my life, but if God's for me, who can be against me? Well, yeah, that sounds nice and and, and dandy, but uh, are you for God? Are you for obedience to God? Are you for doing God's will? Are you for doing the things that honor God? Are you there? And so we have to ask the question, was, was Israel finding fault with the way that the Lord had fashioned them into a nation as well? God has to pronounce these woes to His nation, to His people. Let's get back to our text in Isaiah 45 and look at verse 11. It says, Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. I want you to notice all of these things that God is saying, or that Isaiah is saying of God, all these things are greatly important. Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and His Maker. God speaks and says, Ask me of things to come concerning my sons and concerning the work of my hands. You command me. Now, I'm going to bring the understanding to that whole statement here. It sounds kind of different. But then he says in verse 12, I have made the earth and created man on it. I, my hands, stretched out the heavens, and all their hosts I have commanded. I have raised him up in righteousness. He's speaking of Cyrus here, by the way. And I will direct all his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord is demanding that His sovereignty be honored. Emphasizing His position and place as Creator, more literally, you see, God is asking this question. Are you questioning what I do? See, the construction of that particular verse there in verse 11, ask me of things to come concerning my sons, it's almost as if to say in the English, He's saying to us, oh listen, God is saying, why don't you just ask me? And then command me. But what he is saying in essence is, and what he's saying more literally is, are you questioning what I do? And are you going to order me and my hands? And my hands work? Are you going to order that? Are you the one? That's why in verse 11, I should say in verse 12, he says, hey, I've made the earth and created man on it. You see, now it makes more sense if we understand it that way. Because that is in fact what he's saying. He's not saying command me. He says, you're commanding me. You're questioning me. And the things that I'm doing. And since God alone fashions the future, it is the height of conceit for man to question God's ways instead of humbling oneself to ask for God's own explanations and accept them in faith. Now here's a whole different concept. Is it okay to ask God questions? Yes. It is okay. No problem with that. As a matter of fact, it's even okay to ask God why. When things happen that we don't understand. It's okay. God can take it. But remember what we started with? We started with the, the statement, Woe to he who strives, who quarrels with his maker. That's a whole different thing here. 
I ask God questions. Why? But I humble myself to ask Him that question because I know that He knows the answer. And whether He answers me or not, I still know He has the answer. And I know that if He doesn't answer me when I want to hear the answer, I know that He still has the good answer for me and I'm not going to question Him anymore. Until I get my way. Why, 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 why? There's no reason I can ask the question. To get it off of my mind, off of my chest, off of off just, Lord, I don't understand this. It's okay to ask. But it then comes down to this. I know that He created me. I know that He knows me. I know that He knows my situation. I know that He knows the circumstances surrounding all of these things that I've asked. And so now, God, I've asked. And, and, and I know that if you don't want to answer, it's okay because you have the answer already. And you're not confused about it. You're my God. You're the one I serve. So I'm not going to worry about it. Jesus Himself said, you know, why are you so anxious about things? About what you wear, about what you eat, about this, about that. I'm, I'm going to take, if I take care of the sparrows out in the, you know, that, that one day, you know, I take care of them, and then one day they just fall to the ground and die. How much more am I going to take care of him was, who I've created in my image? How much more will I give to him? I clothe the fields with the flowers, and I clothe the flowers with those beautiful, beautiful leaves, you know. I take care of you. I'll take care of you. And so, since God fashions the future, it is the height of conceit for man to question God's ways instead of humbling oneself to ask for God's own explanations and accept them in faith, even when the Lord says that Israel will be delivered by a Gentile ruler. You see, now the context again. God does not need for man to dictate to him what he is to do with, to, and for his people. But I hear people a lot of times telling God what to do. Because they feel that they have the right to tell God what to do. And I don't believe that we have the right to tell God what to do. He certainly knows things a lot better than I do. Lord, I'd like to advise you. Doesn't that sound weird? And foolish. Lord, I'd like to be your advisor. <laughs> it doesn't add up. If any of you lacks wisdom, what verse is that? James 1 verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. Now, the way I look at it, all of us lack wisdom. I wake up lacking wisdom. The first question is, oh, Lord, it's day. What do I do? <laughs> oh, Lord, the sun is shining. I need wisdom. Lord, the sun's going down. I need wisdom. <laughs> Let's admit to the very fact that we need wisdom from God all the time. But that's okay, because if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who wants to give freely and gives liberally without reproach. In other words, without saying, well, well now, you know, I'll give you wisdom, but uh, we got to deal with yesterday. You were a real stinker yesterday. So I, I don't want to give you my wisdom today. My, yeah, if you kind of make up for the stinkiness of your 
stinkeroony stuff, then maybe I'll give you some wisdom tomorrow. No. God knows we need wisdom every day, so he doesn't withhold it from those who ask. But the point is, he's the advisor, not us. It isn't an option for us to know God as creator. It's not an option. It isn't just a matter of debates and disagreements over textbooks and theories of origins. When people reject God as creator, they are rejecting the God of the Bible. When people reject God as creator, they are rejecting the God of the Bible and in fact are serving a God of their own imagination. God really did make us and it matters a whole lot that we believe that. Who would want to believe in a God who creates things and then withdraws himself from the picture, leaving creation to fend for itself? Who would want to believe in a God like that? Yet, this is a way of life and philosophy of many people today. There are those who just say, well, yeah, we believe that God may have created things, but, uh, you know, he's distant and he's far away. And, you know, he, he just made us and then just say, well, do as good as you can. No, it's not the kind of God I'd want to have. Our God made us with purpose. He made us, gave us wisdom, gave us the, the, the capacity to understand, the capacity to learn, the capacity to grow. Even to this day, we can learn more. I know that the older we get, you know, the brain cells, they tell us, you know, die in daily, you know. But there's millions of them, you know. But the fact of the matter is, I don't care how old you are, you can still learn something. And you can apply yourself to learn the things that God wants you to learn and, and then apply them to your life so that God is honored by the way you live. It is very clear in the Hebrew Scriptures that the Creator not only began everything, but He is also the one who maintains everything that exists, controlling and guiding all things. You see, He hasn't left us to ourselves. Psalm 50, verse 1 says, The Mighty One, uh, God the Lord, has spoken and called the earth from the rising of the sun to its going down. Psalm 66, verses 5 through 7. Come and see the works of God. He is awesome in His doing toward the sons of men. He turned the sea into dry land. They went through the river on foot. You know where we're talking about there, the, the Red Sea. Therefore we will rejoice in Him. He rules by His power forever. His eyes observe the nations. Do not let the rebellious exalt themselves. That's, that's so contemporary today. The, 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 the rebellious are exalting themselves over the fact that they believe there's no God. We believe there's a God. Let's stand up for that. Psalm 93, verse 1. The Lord reigns. He is clothed with majesty. The Lord is clothed. He has girded Himself with strength. Surely the world is established so that it cannot be moved. God has created the world. God is in control of things. God has and maintains all that exists. Now let's move on in verse 13 of our text. The God of all power and creation uses that power on behalf of His people. Directing the ways of Cyrus, His chosen deliverer, <clears throat> and cause Him to, to rebuild Jerusalem and release the children of God. And all of this is done without any offer of a price or reward. That's an interesting thing. Because most rulers, when they would take any control of, 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 of any country or any nation or of any city or any town, whatever, when they took control, they took... The stash. They took 
the gold. They took the silver. But not Cyrus. He did this without any offer of a price or reward, only only a conviction from God that he must do it. I know I've read this a few times, but I'm going to read it again. Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is God, which is in Jerusalem. Doesn't that make a whole lot more sense now? He didn't do this for reward. He didn't do this for a price. He did it under the conviction of the word of God that he must do it. And the fact is, he did it. God alone raised up Cyrus in righteousness, we're told. To show that he was upholding the demand of his covenant with Israel to redeem it. Just go back to Isaiah 42 verses 6 and 7 for a moment. God speaking, he says, I the Lord have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. You see how important righteousness is in the workings of God, even through a Gentile king. So as we move on, we see how the Gentiles are now going to acknowledge Israel's God. Now, here again, I want to mention that there is a, you know, there is, there's near fulfillment and far fulfillment. The near fulfillment doesn't last a whole long time. But the far fulfillment will. And, and those who have been studying with us in the book of Isaiah know we, we talked a little bit about the near and far fulfillment. So anyway, here in verse 40, uh, I'm sorry, Isaiah 45, verse 14, it says, Thus says the Lord, The labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cush, or Ethiopia as it were, and of the Sabaeans, men of stature, or tall men, shall come over to you, and they shall be yours. They shall walk behind you. They shall come, up over, in, they shall come over in chains, and they shall bow down to you. They will make supplication to you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly you are God, who hide yourself, O God of Israel, the Savior. They shall be ashamed and also disgraced, all of them. They shall go in confusion together, who are makers of idols. But Israel shall be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be ashamed or disgraced forever. And ever. Now that is, that is a promised redemption of Israel. That is a promised salvation of, of the nation and people of Israel by God. <clears throat> but now, Cyrus is going to fade into the background here. And from here on, the whole scene is dominated by the uniqueness and the glory of the one who has chosen to use him. The Lord's statement in verse 14 is directed to Jerusalem. It says, the labor of Egypt and merchandise of Cushan, the Sabaeans, men of stature, shall come over to you. He's talking to Jerusalem. As indicated by the use of the feminine singular pronoun you. In the Hebrew, it is a feminine singular pronoun. Now, since cities are referred to in the feminine gender in Hebrew, 
that is the clue that lets us know that he's speaking to Jerusalem. Jerusalem stands for the people of God. Stands for the citizens of Jerusalem. Scattered by their enemies, but destined to return. And what is most astounding is the assertion that they will rule the world. That is what is astounding here. That is what is amazing that is being said. That these nations that represent the world will come and say truly, speaking of their God, of Israel's God, truly you are God. The rich agricultural products and other merchandise of the Nile Valley will flow into Jerusalem and the tall Sabaeans, inhabitants of, the, of, of what is called Upper Egypt and, and, and Lower Sudan. It's really on the map, it's the other way around, but that's, that's, how, they, that's how they call it. Probably because the Nile runs up north rather than running south, you know, so geography lesson time, but forget that. <laughs> but these people from this, this region are going to come like prisoners in a victory parade, confessing that there is no other God but the one who reigns in Jerusalem. Now, there was, uh, they were given over, by the way, and we've read this before, that th- these three nations were given over to Cyrus. So to some extent, that happened in the near fulfillment, but it didn't, of course, last that long with Israel because of their continued struggles and trials. But they're going to bow before Israel and plead with them. And of course, if we look toward the, 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 the far fulfillment, they'll bow before Israel and plead with them, confessing that Israel's God is the only God. The plea is for permission to attach themselves to Israel. And, and nothing, nothing wrong with that thought when you think about how God is, is going to have all Jews and Gentiles come and worship Him in Jerusalem. But the submission, of course, is not so much to Israel itself as it is to the God of Israel. So it's not submission to Israel, it's submission to the God of Israel. Verses 15 through 17 is a resounding flood of praise by Isaiah declaring and exalting God. Understand that God will never hide Himself. Now it says, you know, as they're giving this praise, you know, well, you're the God who hides Himself. But, but understand that God will never hide Himself from the sinner who seeks Him. So we don't use this particular uh, verse to say, well, you know, God hides Himself and you've got to go out and you know, play hide and seek with Him. That's, that's, that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about how God hides Himself and, and we see it more when, when, when we see how He withdraws Himself from Israel because of their sin. So understand it from that particular viewpoint. But God never hides Himself from sinners who seek Him. I, Isaiah is simply declaring what the Apostle Paul would later say in 1 Timothy 1 verse 17 when he says, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible. We don't see Him, do we? Have we ever seen God with our own eyes? To God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But now the Lord has certainly hidden Himself from Israel in the times of the Gentiles and during the times of the Gentiles. Think about Israel today. The people of Israel today, you know, may be a religious people, but primarily they're not. Primarily they, they even themselves uh, don't believe in God. Many are atheists, not wanting to believe in God because of the Holocaust and all the things that have happened to them over the years. There are religious Jews but they have, they have been blind to Jesus Christ. They have been blind to their Messiah. God has hidden Himself until the time of the Gentiles is fulfilled. But 
in the last days they will seek Him and certainly find Him. Consider Hosea 3, verses 4 and 5. It says, For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, just like today, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. Who's that? That's Jesus. They shall fear the Lord and His goodness in the latter days. So there's the promise that God will no longer hide Himself when they come to seek Him. And so His greatness is declared, and idolatry is again labeled as folly. Let's go to verse 18. I'm just going to have to do this very quickly here. But in verse 18 it says, For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, who is God, who formed the earth and made it, who has established it. And and, and do you see the emphasis again on Him being Creator? who did not create it in vain, who formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. You know, that's a very significant thing. God has not spoken in secret. There are a lot of secret societies today. There are even secret societies within religious uh, entities, you know, that claim, you know, some certain greater knowledge because they have found it in one thing or another. And and so they kind of keep it secret. But hey, the Bible is to be revealed to all of the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. So nothing is to be hidden. Nothing is to be secret. So God says that very clearly. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, Seek me in vain, or seek me uh, 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 worthlessly. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you who have escaped from the nations. They have no knowledge, who carry the wood of their carved image, and pray to a God that cannot save. Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides me. See, this is a, this is a, a, a wonderful vision of, of God, a just God and Savior. If you think about it, in the mind, that's not supposed to happen. A just God and a Savior. But let me get to that in a moment. Once again, we're, we're awakened to the fact that God is Creator, and we have a responsibility and commitment to Him as our Creator. It's interesting that Isaiah begins with his own commentary of God's creative work. First, stressing that God's work of creation proves Him to be truly God. Secondly, he brings to light that God didn't create the earth to be empty and in chaos. He created it to be inhabited by man, by mankind. And then God would never say to his people, seek me in vain. I want you to consider something. He never would say to his people, seek me in vain. Deuteronomy 4 verse 29 says, but from there you will seek the Lord your God. And he's speaking to Israel about their time to come when they would be in captivity. From there you will seek the Lord your God and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. In Jeremiah 29 verse 13, And you will seek Me and find Me when you search for Me with all your heart. In Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6, even here it says, But without faith it is impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, and that He is the rewarder of those who what? Diligently seek Him. So he doesn't say, seek me in vain. Seek me worthlessly. The person who seeks God will find him when he searches for him with all of their heart. 
And in verses 20 and 21, God's greatness, God's faithfulness, God's power to save greatly contrasts the worthless idols of the nations. He is indeed a just God and a Savior. Now let's get to this point. Impossible to rationalize in the flesh since justice demands that offenders and sinners be punished. But what great love the Father has shown by fulfilling the righteous demands of His justice by the cross of Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son. He's a just God and a Savior. Romans 5 verses 6 through 10 says it best. I believe it says when it says, For when we are still, when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And just going back a couple of pages in Romans Romans 3 verse 26, it says, All this is to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness, that He might be just and justifier of the one who has faith. In Jesus, So it, it, it may be in the flesh we can't understand it, but in the Spirit we can. He is both just and Savior. He is both just and justifier. So He is God who judges, but how did He judge? Upon His only begotten Son. That is how precious what Jesus Christ did for us. That we should never make or take lightly. And so do all the nations... And peoples of the world, the Lord declares in verse 22, Look to me and be saved. These were the words that touched the person of Charles Spurgeon as a young man. And I don't have time to go into all that story. But one person got up at a church because the pastor couldn't get there because of a snowstorm. And that was his text. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall shall take an oath. He shall say, Surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed who are incensed against him. In the Lord all the descendants of Israel shall be justified and shall glory. Here is the simplicity of salvation. Here is the simplicity of salvation. All we must do is L-O-O-K. What's in the middle of the L and the K? Two O's. We must look. Look to me. Look. Look to God. And never to self or to anyone else. Look to God. He says, look to me. There is a pleading here. He says, look to me. He who loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son. Look to me and consider the assurance of that salvation. Look to me and be saved. Consider the extent of His saving love. Look to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. He doesn't limit that salvation. But we must look to God. You know, we, we see something quoted here 
that is taken by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 2. And he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every every name that at the name of Jesus, folks, listen, the name of Jesus. And then he quotes from Isaiah and he says, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is so significant because in Isaiah God is clearly speaking. And he's speaking about people bowing down to him. He says that to me every knee shall bow. Every tongue shall take an oath. To me, he says. And yet Paul will take this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he says, he attributes these words to Jesus. At the name of Jesus every knee should bow. And these words are the strengthening that understanding of Christ's deity. We keep telling, you know, we keep hearing people say, well, you know, there's not a whole lot of you know, verses of Scripture that deal with the deity of Jesus. Oh, there's a ton of them. Like from Genesis to Revelation. But you've got to search and you've got to see it for yourself. Lastly, because of time, the declaration of every believer is given to us in verses 24 and 25. He shall say, surely in the Lord I have righteousness and strength. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ tonight, you have righteousness and strength, but it's not because of you. And it's not from you, and it's not from anyone else. He says, To him men shall come, and all shall be ashamed, who are incensed against him. There's a contrast here, by the way. Our strength and righteousness is not in ourselves or in anyone else. Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are His workmanship. We are His workmanship. What what does that remind you of? God is the creator. God is the potter. And you are His poema. You are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Here is the twofold destiny of God's enemies and His worshippers. Those who have raged against Him will be put to shame. Those who have looked to Him will be saved. What a great and glorious and gracious God we serve. I've always loved that verse of Scripture, for we are His workmanship. The word is, is, is in the uh, Greek poema. We get our word in English, poem. Have you ever spent any time, you know, in, in English class and, and told to, you know, once you've learned the basics of constructing poetry, to really have a good one, you've got to work hard. And, and you've got to work, you know, within the, 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 you know, the rules to make the beauty of it come out. But that's what that word means, a workmanship. We are His workmanship. So does the pot tell the potter how to make Him? No. We're His workmanship. And we'll just accept what God made us to be. And be in His love and in His grace and just thank God 
for the mercies that he has extended to us. Then we can say, because you're the creator, Lord, then I, I want to give my whole life to you. My duty, my responsibility, my commitment is to you and to you alone. Because you made me and you keep me and you use me and you fill me with yourself. Are you ready to serve the God that created you? Let's pray.